in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King on Martin Luther King Day. We return to Bringing Light into Darkness Monday News and Analysis and Dr. King's Beyond Vietnam speech, which we are listening to in its entirety. We have removed the applauses during the speech in order to get it to fit our program content time. Enjoy. They ask how we can speak of free elections when the Saigon press is censored and controlled by the military hunters. And they're surely right to wonder what kind of new government we plan to help form without them. The party in real touch with the peasants. They question our political goals and they deny the reality of a peace settlement from which they will be excluded. Their questions are frighteningly relevant. Is our nation planning to build on political myth again, then show it up from the power of new violence? Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and non-violence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. If we are mature, we may learn growing profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. So too with Hanoi, and the north where our bombs now pummel the land, our minds endanger the waterways. We are met by deep but understandable mistrust. To speak for them is to explain this lack of confidence in Western words, and especially their distrust of American intentions now. In Hanoi are the men who led the nation to independence against the Japanese and the French, the men who sought membership in the French Commonwealth and were betrayed by the weakness of Paris, and the willfulness of the colonial arms. It was they who led a second struggle against French domination at tremendous cost, and then were persuaded to give up the land they controlled between the 13th and 17th parallel as a temporary measure at Geneva. After 1954, they watched us conspire with DM to prevent elections which could have surely brought Ho Chi Minh to power over the United Vietnam. They realize they had been betrayed again, and we ask why they do not leap to negotiate. These things must be remembered. Also, it must be clear that the leaders of Hanoi considered the presence of American troops in support of the DM regime to have been the initial military breach of the Geneva Agreement concerning foreign troops. They remind us that they did not begin to send troops in large numbers and even supplies to the south until American forces had moved into the tens of thousands. And all remembers how our leaders refused to tell us the truth about the earlier North Vietnamese overtures for peace, how the president claimed that none existed when they had clearly been made. Ho Chi Minh has watched as America has spoken of peace and built up its forces. Now he has surely heard the increasing international rumors of American plans for an invasion of the North. He knows the bombing and shelling and mining we are doing a part of traditional pre-invasion strategy. Perhaps only his sense of humor and of irony can save him when he hears the most powerful nation of the world speaking of aggression as it drops thousands of bombs on a poor, weak nation more than 800 rather 8,000 miles away from its shore. 
point I should make it clear that while I have tried in these last few minutes to give a voice to the voiceless in Vietnam, to understand the arguments of those who are called enemy, I am as deeply concerned about our own troops there as anything else. For it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to in Vietnam is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are in cynicism to the process of death, for they must know after the short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. Before long, they must know that their government has sent them into a struggle among Vietnamese. The more sophisticated children realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. I speak as a child of God and brother to the suffering poor of Vietnam. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak, of the, speak for the poor of America, who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home, death and corruption in Vietnam. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as one who loves America, to the leaders of our own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. This is a message of the great Buddhist leaders of Vietnam. Recently one of them wrote these words, and I quote, Each day the war goes on, the hatred increases in the heart of Vietnamese, in the hearts of those of humanitarian instinct. The Americans are forcing even their friends into becoming their enemies. It is curious that the Americans, who calculate so carefully on the possibilities of military victory, do not realize that in the process they incur deep psychological and political defeat. The image of America will never again be the image of revolution, freedom, and democracy. But the image of violence and militarism, unquote, we continue, there would be no doubt in my mind and in the mind of the world that we have no honorable intentions in Vietnam. We do not stop our war against the people of Vietnam immediately. The world would be left with no other alternative than to see this as some horrible, clumsy, and deadly game we have decided to play. The world now demands a maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. It demands that we admit that we have been wrong from the beginning of our intention in Vietnam, that we have been detrimental to the life of the Vietnamese people. The situation is one in which we must be ready to turn sharply from our present ways in order to atone for our sins and errors in Vietnam, we should take the initiative in bringing a halt to this tragic war. I would like to suggest five concrete things that our government should do immediately to begin the long and difficult process of ex extricating ourselves from this nightmarish conflict. Number one, end all bombing in North and South Vietnam.
to declare a unilateral ceasefire in the hope that such action will create the atmosphere for negotiation. Three, take immediate steps to prevent other battlegrounds in Southeast Asia by curtailing our military buildup in Thailand and our interference in Laos. Four, realistically accept the fact that the National Liberation Front has substantial support in South Vietnam and must therefore play a role in any meaningful negotiations in any future Vietnam government. Five, set a date that we will remove all foreign troops from Vietnam in accordance with the 1954 Geneva Agreement. Our ongoing commitment might well express itself in an offer to grant asylum to any Vietnamese who fears for his life under the new regime which included the Liberation Front. Then we must make what reparations we can for the damage we have done. We must provide the medical aid that is badly needed, making it available in this country if necessary. Meanwhile, we in the churches and synagogues have a continuing task while we urge our government to disengage itself from a disgraceful commitment. We must continue to raise our voices and our lives if our nation persists in its perverse ways in Vietnam. We must be prepared to match actions with words by seeking out every creative method of protest possible. As we counsel young men concerning military service, we must clarify for them our nation's role in Vietnam and challenge them with the alternative of conscientious objection. Pleased to say that this is a path now chosen by more than 70 students at my own Alma Mater Morehouse College. And I recommend it to all who find the American course in Vietnam a dishonorable and unjust one. Over, I would encourage all ministers of draft aid give up their ministerial exemptions and seek status as conscientious objectors. These are the times for real choices and not false ones. We are at the moment when our lives must be placed on the line if our nation is to survive its own fault. Every man of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions. But we must all protest. Now that is something seductively tempting about stopping there and sending us all off on what in some circles has become a popular crusade against the war in Vietnam. I say we must enter that struggle, but I wish to go on now to say something even more disturbing. The war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. If we ignore this sobering reality, we will find ourselves organizing clergy and layman concerned committees for the next generation. They will be concerned about Guatemala and Peru. They will be concerned about Thailand and Cambodia. They will be concerned about Mozambique and South Africa. We will be marching for these and a dozen other names and attending rallies without end unless that is a significant and profound change in American life and politics. So such thoughts take us beyond Vietnam, but not beyond our calling as sons of the living God. In 1957, a sensitive American official overseas said that it seemed to him that our nation was on the wrong side 
of a world revolution. During the past 10 years, we have seen emerge a pattern of suppression, which has now justified the presence of U.S. military advisors in Venezuela, this need to maintain social stability for our investment accounts for the counter-revolutionary action of American forces in Guatemala. It tells why American helicopters are being used against guerrillas in Cambodia, why American napalm and Green Beret forces have already been active against rebels in Peru. It is with such activity in mind that the words of the late John F. Kennedy come back to haunt us. Five years ago, he said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Increasingly by choice or by accident, this is a role our nation has taken, the role of those who make peaceful revolution impossible by refusing to give up the privileges and the pleasures that come from the immense profits of overseas investments. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must radically begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. That will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. The revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation it will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of South America and say this is not just. Western Arabs are feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war. This way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally human, sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death.
survival of man. When I speak of love, I'm not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm not speaking of that force which is just emotional bosh. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate, ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another. Yes. Love is God. Yes. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. We love one another. God dwelleth in us. And his love is perfected in us. Let us hope that this spirit will become the awe of the day. We can no longer afford to worship the God of hate, bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Tonda says, love is the ultimate force makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word, unquote. We are now faced with the fact, my friends, that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history, that is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked, and dejected with the lost opportunity. Tied in the affairs of men does not remain at flooded areas. We may cry desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is adamant to every plea and rushes on over the bleached bones and jumbled residues of numerous civilizations, written the pathetic words too late. There is an invisible book of life that faithfully records our vigilance or our neglect. Omar Khayyam's right to move and finger rights and having writ moves on. We still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence, a violent co-annihilation. We must move past indecision to action. We must find new ways to speak for peace in Vietnam and justice throughout the developing world, a world that borders on our doors. We do not act. We shall surely be dragged down the long, dark, and shameful corridors of time, reserved for those who possess power without compassion, might without morality, and strength without sight. Now let us begin. Now let us rededicate ourselves to the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is the calling of the sons of God. And our brothers wait eagerly for our response. Shall we say the odds are too great? Shall we tell them the struggle is too hard? Will our message be that the forces of American life militate against their arrival as poor men, and we send our deepest regrets. Will there be another message, a 
love, of hope, of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost, the choice is ours. Though we might prefer the wise, we must choose and choose a moment of history when history. That noble bard of yesterday, James Russell Lord eloquently stated, once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, often eats the gloom of light, and the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness and that light, though the cause of evil prosper. Yet this truth alone is strong, though her portion be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. If we will only make the right choice, we will be able to transform this pending cosmic elegy into a creative song of peace, we will make the right choice. We will be able to transform the jangling discourse of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. We will but make the right choice. We will be able to speed up the day all over America and all over the world when justice will roll down like walls and righteousness like a mighty stream. See you next week.